What's up, guys? This is Jim. Welcome to the Holmes Politicast. Uh, I'll be your host today. Uh, we have a lot of big stories going on in the world. I mean, we've got six weeks until the election. That's some, uh, the presidential election. Well, I guess the Senate's too and everything. But that's always a big story. And then, of course, as you all know about Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying and the, I guess it's not really, it's more of a war of words about, you know, who's going to be picked and whether or not there should be a nomination. And so politics is crazy as if, as if 2020 couldn't have gotten any crazier. Now we have this just 40 some days before the election. This is just <laughs> insane. And I would say that this has been the craziest. Well, it probably is the craziest year of my lifetime for sure. But, um, but the entire four years of Trump has been just insane. I mean, so this is kind of par for the course. I don't know if it'll ever calm down. But yeah, this has been a year for the record books. Um, as Tom and I have talked about before, I mean, this year we have seen an impeachment of a president. We have seen a pandemic, an economic crisis caused by that pandemic. You know, we've got major hurricanes that have hit the United States, earthquakes in Los Angeles. We have police shootings and riots and burning of cities. We had that whole chop or whatever that was going on in Portland. And now we have these unprecedented wildfires that are going on in the West Coast. I mean, it's just absolute insanity this year. And, uh, and you know, and then we have the presidential election coming up and Man, this has been quite a year. Just when things start to seem like they might kind of sort of return to somewhat normal, boom, something else happens and we're off to the races again. And everyone's saying, unprecedented, unbelievable, this is crazy. Um, there are a few things that haven't happened that could happen this year, but I'm not going to speculate or say anything because I don't want to sound like I'm endorsing any of these things. But there are just maybe two or three things that are left that could make this unprecedented year even more unprecedented. So um, anyway, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. I might talk a little bit more about this year in a bit. I've got three stories. Uh, the first one, uh, it says it's from Channel 4. It's a Michigan Michigan site. I don't know what that, what it is. I don't know what it would be called. Um, oh, click on Detroit, maybe. I don't know. I, I can't really tell. But anyway, it's an article. Actually, it doesn't even tell who the article is by. Oh, oh no, it does. I'm sorry. Rod Maloney. It was just in a different spot. So it's like, as soon as I said that, I thought, uh oh. I don't know if I want to be reading an article that doesn't tell who it's written by, and I have trouble. <laughs> I had, that, that, that could be a warning sign. But no, it's from Rod Maloney. And uh, so it says, A new deal maintains Michigan budget for now. Big concerns for next year. Uh, it's from Lansing. Billions of dollars from the federal government have helped keep Michigan afloat amid financial hardships caused by the coronavirus pandemic. Through its various coronavirus programs, the federal government has provided $43 billion to the state of Michigan to help the state maintain regular operations amid the pandemic. 
the federal government's unemployment benefits and loans to businesses under the Payment Protection Program have helped Michigan either collect enough taxes or provide enough cash to prevent a budget disaster. With the federal government's help, two of the major traditional budget concerns in Michigan, K-12 schools and local revenue sharing, will not take any cuts. House Appropriations Chairman Shane Hernandez tells Local 4 News that the federal government bought Michigan some time. They bought us time to understand COVID, understand how we deal with it, and open our businesses and schools, Hernandez said. We've seen the advantages of that now, and we've actually made it through this past year. And we were able to get a 2020 budget done and go into 2021 with revenue. Though the financial support has helped Michigan's economy, the federal money could easily dry up, which could pose problems for the state's budget next year, which is already facing a projected deficit of $1.2 billion. Hernandez believes that Michigan businesses cannot afford to operate under such heavy restrictions much longer. If we don't take advantage of this time that was bought and get our businesses open, we are looking at trouble in 2022, Hernandez said. So it's incredibly important that we start to do that now and continue opening businesses. Michigan's budget is currently $58 billion, though some details still need to be ironed out among legislatures. The budget will likely get voted on next week. Uh, There's a lot packed into that article. Um, There's not a whole lot to criticize about it. Just a few things that I wanted to pull out of this, just to say number one, um, that the federal government helped save Michigan. Um, and I'm kind of torn about that because I've, I've been opposed for a long time to the federal government paying states and, and, and states relying on the federal government. Um, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I don't have a real well thought out argument right now. I mean, it's something I thought about over the years. And so I kind of have a strong opinion about it, but I can't really explain to you how I came to that conclusion over the years. But this actually makes an argument against what I've always believed, because this did help Michigan tremendously. It was a nationwide problem and Michigan suffered because of it. I mean, I'll just leave out the part about whether or not we should have shut down everything and the politics of it. But Michigan did suffer. And and if it hadn't been for the federal government, we would have gone bankrupt uh, or, or had such huge deficits that we wouldn't be able to afford to pay for anything. It would have been a disaster in the state. So, you know, it's a tough one. Federalism versus... States' rights has always been something that's that I've struggled with because I can see the benefit to both and I can see the negative to both. Uh, so that's the first thing. I mean, I am thankful that $43 billion was able to come to Michigan, although I still don't know where the federal government's getting this money from. We're trillions of dollars in debt. I'm not sure how we're paying for this, but... But anyway, I'm not going to go off on some tangent about that. Uh, uh, The second thing is that um, we are, we haven't heard anything 
coming from the governor that has been positive as far as this. All we've heard about is how bad the federal government has handled this and how it's Donald Trump's fault that we're in this position and all these things. And in actuality, um, it looks like that the federal government, and I know Donald Trump isn't the federal government because the Congress had to pass this stuff too. But, um, but it looks like the federal government actually bailed us out. So I'm not saying that she has to go in you know, kiss Trump's feet, you know, in public and, and thank him for all this, but she really shouldn't be attacking him when, you know, when they did help us tremendously. And I know that if, and I know, I can't prove it, but I know that if, that if a Democrat was president right now and they did this, then she would be all out saying that, um, the president saved Michigan, um, just like they did when Obama bailed out the auto industry. They said that Obama saved the auto industry, therefore he saved Michigan jobs, and that was one reason why we should reelect him. Um, so, you know, I if if I was in politics and the opposite party helped me, I probably wouldn't hold a press conference to talk about how great they are, but I wouldn't run them down. I would just stay quiet about it. You know, I wouldn't lie if they asked, you know, about it. I'd say, yeah, the federal government helped, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold a press conference to say, you know, thank you, Lord, for, for providing this president to save us. But uh, I would just remain quiet about it. But this trash talking is just completely inappropriate to complain and say that the Republicans in Washington are to blame for all of our woes. When in actuality, they're the one who saved us from ourselves, uh, theoretically, because Whitmer shut down everything. So um, if it hadn't been for the federal government, we would have collapsed. Our economy would have collapsed under its own weight. So um, so take that how you may. I mean, whether or not you say that's a reason to vote for Trump or, you know, I'm not endorsing either candidate here. I'm just saying that I'm just making an observation that the federal government did help us tremendously there. And I just think it's wrong for her to be criticizing the federal government uh, when she, her approval rating is determined. I mean, she has a pretty high approval rating from what I understand here in Michigan. And she wouldn't, if the economy had collapsed, she would probably be thrown out immediately. And you'd have to have the police protect her from the pitchforks and things because people would be irate with her, that the federal government hadn't stepped in and helped. The other story is from the Hill. As I've said before, this is normally, I, I guess, pre-pandemic. I mean, it seems like um, normally they cover Capitol Hill in Washington. Of course, it is the summer recess, and so there's not a lot to talk about. Um, uh, it's by Rebecca Clark, and it says, health officials urge people to stay indoors, suspect they suspect a rare mosquito-borne virus in Michigan. Boy, they are just determined to keep Michiganders inside their house. I don't understand that. Um, health officials in Michigan are reportedly urging people to stay indoors after 10 counties confirmed cases of the mosquito-borne virus, eastern equine encephalitis, in 22 horses and one suspected human case. The Michigan Department of Health and Human Services confirmed 22 horses, horse cases in 10 counties and one suspected human case in Berry County as of Wednesday. 
the department said. Officials said they will begin aerial treatment Wednesday night in certain high-risk areas of the state to prevent the spread of eastern equine encephalitis. The Michigan Department of Health and Human Services is also urging people in Barry County, as well as Claire, Ionia, Isabella, Jackson, Kent, Macosta, Montcalm, Nuego, and Oakland counties to cancel or postpone outdoor events that take place after dusk to prevent more people from contracting the virus, according to USA Today. Um, and then they just have a little bit about the statement. Uh, and I'm not going to quote that. Eastern equine encephalitis is one of the most dangerous mosquito-borne diseases in the U.S., with a 33% fatality rate in people who become ill. I've never heard of this before, but this is interesting. People younger than 15 or over 50 are at greatest risk of severe disease following infection, and the risk of bites is highest for people who work and play outdoors in affected areas. Uh, the department said that the 22 reported cases in horses are twice as many cases as the same time last year. More than 25% of the nation's eastern equine encephalitis cases last year were diagnosed in Michigan, according to the state. Well, that is interesting. That is very interesting. Um, one day I might study some of this stuff and find out why this seems to affect Michigan more than others. I don't... I don't know how, what this is. Encephalitis, I really don't even know what that means. I've heard the term before. Equine is like a Latin word for horses. So, uh, I, I don't know but what that means. Uh, I don't know why it strikes in Michigan primarily. You know, um, yeah, it's interesting though. Uh, but it doesn't sound like everyone needs to stay indoors as the... Uh, Headline reads, sounds like just certain people in certain areas need to stay indoors. I mean, 33% fatality rate is a pretty large number, but it's not, it's not like plague numbers. Um, so just keep that in mind. Maybe if you're in an area where there's a lot of horses, um, maybe just... Don't be spending a lot of time outside after dark or after dusk. But anyway, that's something we can keep an eye on. Who knows? I mean, oh gosh, it's just so much going on this year. You just don't know. After the pandemic, I'm just not sure what is just a cautionary tale and what can just be, you know, what is serious. Like, I don't know. This could end up being a serious problem. It could just be a cautionary tale and so I don't know. I have no idea what's going on with that. But if any of you know about that, about that disease or what causes it or how it travels or what the symptoms are, feel free to write in because I have no clue anything about that. I assume there are veterinarians and other people who would know what I'm talking about. Uh, this is from NPR. Not my favorite source, but it's an interesting Article. I don't know if there's a lot of, if it's biased. I guess we'll find out here in a minute. It's by Avi, Avi, I don't know how to pronounce the name, Schneider. Um, first name is A-V-I-E. I don't know. I've never seen that before. I'm just going to assume it's Avi Schneider. 
And it's in the business section. It says stocks tumble on big banks role in money laundering report. Fears of relief delay. Well, this is interesting. I heard that the stock market had fallen like 800 points or something um, the other day. So I was curious about that. But here we go in the article. It's going to be a little technical. So uh, bear with me. Um, the Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped 509 points Monday following a report that large global banks were involved in transactions flagged as possible money laundering. And hopes for another relief measure from Congress flagged as lawmakers focused on the fight over a Supreme Court nomination following the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The Dow fell 1.8% to 27,147, and the broader S&P 500 index slid 1.2%. The NASDAQ Composite Index closed down 0.1%. All three indexes were down more sharply earlier Monday. Bank stocks fell after a news report that J.P. Morgan Chase, Deutsche Bank, and other giant banks defied money laundering crackdowns. J.P. Morgan Chase fell more than 3%. Citigroup was down 2.2%, and HSBC was down nearly 6%. A surge in COVID-19 cases in the United Kingdom raised fears of another lockdown there. Lockdowns have ripple effects that hurt several industries, including travel. Airline stocks plummeted Monday, with United Airlines down nearly 9% and American Airlines down 7.4%. Stocks have had a rough September. The Dow has fallen nearly 5% so far this month. Another factor weighed in on the market Monday. Over the weekend, China announced rules for a new regulatory body that could blacklist foreign comp companies that unfairly treat Chinese companies or pose a threat to Chinese national security, NPR's Emily Feng reported. China has not yet said which companies would be labeled unreliable entities, but Chinese state media have suggested that U.S. tech companies, including Apple, Qualcomm, and Cisco, would be considered. U.S. tech stocks, which led the market to new records, have been sliding in recent weeks. The latest tension with China comes as the Trump administration has threatened to bar the Chinese-owned TikTok and WeChat apps in the United States. The U.S. economic slowdown amid the coronavirus pandemic also continues to worry investors. Retail sales grew more slowly in August after an extra $600 per week and federal unemployment benefits expired. The Federal Reserve has cut interest rates to historic lows and said it expects to keep them down through at least 2023. But Congress has been deadlocked about providing additional pandemic economic assistance. The debate over whether President Trump should be allowed to name a successor to Ginsburg could dampen hopes for a relief deal. Oh, my goodness. This is getting crazy. All right. I've, I've talked a lot about how concerned I am with the economy with this pandemic. Um the economy wasn't doing that great before, uh, contrary to what everyone said. It was it was healthy, but it wasn't. It was kind of like a souffle, if any of you have done any cooking, where, you know, the slightest bump and it'll collapse. And that's kind of how our economy has been for a long, long time. We never really recovered from the 2008 financial crisis. Um, we just learned to live with it. So what the economy 30 years ago, we would have said, 
the economy was not good at all. After 2008, we brought it back somewhat and we just learned to live with it. So it became the new normal. And so that's how we based it. And so it was doing better than it was. So we say the economy is doing fantastic. But you get the slightest bump like the pandemic and the economy starts falling apart and it becomes a cycle just like the Great Depression. I mean, everyone thinks that the stock market crashed and the next day we were in the Great Depression. And that's not true. Uh, there were sectors that crashed immediately. But out in the heartland, um, you know, I've seen some documentaries about the Great Depression and I've studied up on it and the Dust Bowl. Uh, people in Kansas and Nebraska and Oklahoma, uh, they heard about, a about the stock market crash out in New York, but it didn't affect them for a couple of years. Is it slowly trickled down as people... Um, as the businesses slowly started shutting down across the country, it wasn't an immediate overnight. One day, everything was prosperous. The next day, we were in a depression. And that's what happens, could it potentially happen here, is now we're starting to see people are, you know, people are starting to be more concerned with how they spend their money. You know, do we really need a new pair of shoes? Do we really need to get the newest iPhone that comes out? Do we need to buy a brand new car off the lot? Um, you know, that might've been fine when the economy was doing well and they had money coming in and they had credit, but as people are becoming more and more accustomed to things being shut down and not knowing when you'll get a job and not knowing how long this is going to last, uh, people are either going to save their money, put it away in, in case there's a disaster and they need money in case somebody gets sick or has to go to the hospital or, you know, um, you know, in case, you know, they, they have to buy medicine or they have to buy food or clothing or pay rent. Uh, people will start saving their money instead of spending it. And when they do spend it, it's going to be not on luxury items by and large. I mean, I mean, even during the Depression, there were rich people. So I'm not I'm not saying that no one is ever going to buy a new car. I mean, there's still people who are going to do well even during the Depression. If we fall into it, people are still going to do well. So there will still be people who buy new cars. But by and large, the average American is, is going to say, if I need a car, I'm going to buy a used car. I'm not going to go out and buy a brand new one. Or if I need, I'll make this phone work or just get it updated or whatever, instead of going and buying a brand new phone. Um, you know, they start making tougher choices. And suddenly, big screen TVs and, and a lot of these luxury items aren't priorities. And, you know, who cares if I have a 60-inch screen TV if I don't have money on it? I don't have food to put on food on the table. I mean, you know, yeah, well, you kids can watch TV. You can't eat, but you got this brand new TV to watch. You know, it just it just becomes priorities start to, you know, they, they start putting things in priorities and or they start prioritizing things is what I meant to say. And um, slowly you'll start seeing as we are techs and, and new homes and things like this start you know, start being affected because people aren't going to be moving as much when they have less money unless they're evicted. I mean, they might downsize, but they're not going to be buying larger new homes, which is how it's, it's so weird. We kind of have this almost like a Ponzi scheme in the housing market because you don't see a lot of low income housing being built. Most of the housing is high end housing. And the idea is that you build nice big homes and then rich people will move out of their big homes into a bigger home. 
which opens up the door for the middle class to move into the higher old higher class homes. And it's kind of that um, uh, trickle down economics theory that, you know, everyone will move up. But when you have an economic problem like we are now, you're not seeing that. You might have rich people moving into bigger homes, but the middle class is going to be downsizing. They're not going to be getting a place bigger. And so you end up with a lot of these big homes that just sit on the market for years because they're not selling. Nobody's moving into those homes and you're having a, a crunch on the, on the down end because there aren't enough homes that are affordable for families across the market. So, you know, so you start to see like techs, tech and home and real estate and things like this, where they'll be affected first and it'll slowly trickle down. And then as people aren't buying new cars as much, well, then the auto industry is going to start laying off people because, because people are buying old used cars. They're not buying brand new cars. So there's no point in continuing to make brand new cars just to sit on the lot. And you only have maybe 10% of them sell, you know, it's not worth making all these cars to have them sit on the lot, you know, just, just to sit there when people aren't buying them. And then it's the same thing with shoes and clothing. You know, you're not going to continue to make tons of clothing just to sit on a shelf. You know, if people aren't buying them, if they're going down to Goodwill and buying old clothes and just putting patches in their blue jeans and, you know, are buying old, old clothing that they can wear, um, you, you know, you start to see the market shrink. And it, and it happens over time. It's not an overnight tomorrow. We're all in desperate straits. We're all in a depression. You know, it's a slow process. And that's what I'm concerned about here. You know, and the fact that now, and this is not, this is both their faults in a way. Um, the fact that now with Ginsburg being dead, they're going to want to rush through uh, a successor, which that is the fault of the Republicans. Typically, it takes months to vet uh, um, Supreme Court justice, and you have hearings, and you know, um, you know, it, it, it's not an overnight thing. It's not something that's done in a week. It, it has historically always taken months, and the Republicans want to push it through very quickly for for obvious reasons, and the Democrats want to derail it very quickly, also for obvious reasons. But it's unfortunate that now. All the oxygen is going to be consumed with replacing Ginsburg instead of um, providing additional pandemic economic assistance. That's what we really, really need right now. Or we need something. I mean, I don't know if we need the government to send out paychecks to people, but I'm just saying we need something. Something has to be done here because people are being evicted at a high rate around the country from their homes because they don't have the money. Uh, it's going to add to the homeless population, uh, you know, uh, food stamps, uh, Medicaid, unemployment, all these things are going to take a hit. Social Security, we could end up bankrupting all of those programs. And then the people who really need them aren't going to be able to get them because you have all these people who could work but can't because of the pandemic or the response to the pandemic. They can't work. So they're taking up all the money. And then our elderly and our sick who have come to rely on it aren't going to have the money because the whole system collapses. Because we have too many takers and not enough providers, because somebody has to pay for that, you know. And if and if you end up with 
over half the country on economic assistance and the other half of the country paying for the other half's economic assistance, then there's no way that can be sustained. You know, so um, also the tariff issue, this was a losing issue for Trump. I don't know why he chose to do that. Uh, put all these tariffs on China. I understand that he thinks China was ripping us off, and I'll admit they were. But there were other things that we could have done. It could have been progressive. I, I don't know. Not progressive. Um, I don't know the term for it. I can't remember the term for it offhand. But, you know, where um, it adds to it over time, like you start with, uh, we'll just say, a 3% tariff, and then next year it goes to 4%, then 5%. I don't think that's called a progressive. But, um, but yeah, you know, you could have, you could have slowly done it so that over time it makes it, 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 we, we, but it's not overnight. So it doesn't, um, create bad feelings. I mean, there's any number of things we could have done to have, uh, solved this by putting those huge economic sanctions or the tariffs on, uh, on China, not sanctions, tariffs on China. We just really shot ourselves in the foot. It doesn't really seem to have that big effect on China, it seems like it's boomerang having a big effect on us. I mean, I know that farmers got a lot of their product was sold to China and now they're hurting, uh, you know, and, and now are, they've reciprocated. Now they want to do these new rules to blacklist foreign companies that unfairly treat Chinese companies. Well, they might as well just say right there that we want to, uh, new regulatory body to blacklist the United States, because that's what they're talking about. They, they want to punish the United States for us putting those tariffs on them, which our tech industry gets lots of money from, from Asia. And so that would be detrimental. And then with Trump, I'm not, I understand that TikTok had, there was some threats to national security. Um, I don't know if, we're handling it right. I don't know what I would do differently, but I'm sure that we could do this a little bit differently than just banning TikTok and forcing it to be sold. I mean, the problem is in the software. I mean, is it really any better to have American companies spying on us than Chinese companies? I don't know. The problem is in the software. It doesn't really matter who owns it. So it seems like we should do something to stop the software problem that they're spying or whatever they're doing rather than just forcing an American company to own TikTok. But there again, that's where the libertarian part of me comes in. I just don't know if the federal government has the constitutional right to dictate that you, that they have to sell their own private business to an American company. I don't, I'm not sure if the constitution provides for that. If it was a national security issue and they wanted to attack TikTok, you could do it that way, but not forcing it to sell to an American company. You could force them to, you know, you could ban it on nuclear on uh, national security reasons and say, you know, we're not going to allow it here because of the spying. But I don't know. I don't know. There's just something about that that just unnerves me when the federal government can force people to sell their their, their uh, companies. Um, and certainly, I think I think Trump has dropped it, but certainly when he was saying before that the United States should get a percentage 
for transacting the deal is just ridiculous. The United States government is not in the business of making a profit, and that's not what we do. We're not a business. We're not a corporation. Um, we take in taxes, and we use taxes to pay for things. We're not in the profit-making business. Um, so, you know, uh, but anyway, um, let's see here. Uh, we got about eight minutes left. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the upcoming election, which is really exciting for me. Um, next week, we're going to start the debates, and then we have a debate every week. One presidential, the next is a vice presidential, then a presidential the next week, presidential the week after that. And then, bam, like a week or a week and a half is the election. So, I mean, it's it's coming along fast. It's coming along fast and furious. It's going to be here in no time. Um, I don't know how it's going to turn out, honestly. I really don't. There are, you could make a good case of Trump winning re-election. You could also make a good case that Biden could win. I mean, it's a really tough one. Like usually, except for four years ago, I've always been pretty good about predicting the race because you can kind of see where it's going, you know. Um, and you know that one a person is unpopular or they're popular. Uh, and usually it's a referendum on the president. So you know if the president is doing okay. He might not be real popular, but like Obama wasn't extremely popular in uh, 2012, but he hadn't really done anything to upset his base or um, the average person. So it was going to be an uphill battle for Mitt Romney. It was still possible, and anything's possible in an election, but I, I kind of knew that Obama was going to win, even though I personally wasn't going to vote for him. I knew Obama was, was more likely to win than not, just because he was doing a decent job we didn't, you know, he wasn't beloved, but he was doing okay. Same thing with George W. Bush. The war was going all right. He wasn't doing a great job. He wasn't real popular with liberals, but but he hadn't done anything to really anger people. Um, we still, you know, we still believed in the war in Iraq. We were still doing okay there. So it seemed, so it was kind of obvious that it was going to be hard for John Kerry to beat George Bush. Like I said, anything can happen. You never rule anything out. But in this race, it's kind of hard because the anti-Trump sentiment is so strong. And it's hard to tell if it's just they're really loud and vocal. And or, you know, and and he's not really that unpopular. It's just that they have a lot of voices. Or. And and it could be a personal thing. People just don't like Trump personally, but they don't mind the job he's doing. Um, and if that's the case, you know, then that's a hard thing to pull. And, you know, because they still might vote for him, even though they don't like him. Like, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to hang out with him. This is what they might be saying. I wouldn't want to hang out with him. I wouldn't I wouldn't hire him to work at my house for anything. I wouldn't want him if he was if he was related to me, I wouldn't invite him over for Thanksgiving dinner. But as far as doing his job, yeah. He's done okay. I mean, I'm not opposed to what he's doing. So there could be a lot of that. People who just don't like him, but they're going to vote for him anyway. Uh, the difference between now and four years ago with the Democrat is even though a lot of people aren't thrilled with Joe Biden, they don't have the hatred toward Joe Biden that they did toward Hillary Clinton. I mean, Hillary Clinton 
was so hated by so many people. Um, the Clintons in general were, and Democrats and Republicans couldn't stand the Clintons by this time. Had she run eight, 12 years ago, she might have got elected president. But in the ensuing years, the Clintons, their corruption had started to come public. Um, there had been a, a change in um, society where Bill Clinton's behavior in the 90s, even though a lot of Republicans didn't like it, the Democrats kind of had a eh, boys will be boys, boys kind of attitude. You can't you can't regulate morality. You can't, you know, that kind of thing. And since then, with the Me Too movement and these things, suddenly uh, progressives have changed and said you can regulate morality. It, it's wrong to have somebody in office who is a pervert and, and doesn't treat women with respect. And so as they went back and started relooking at Bill Clinton's career, their their attitude toward Bill Clinton changed. We're now young people were saying, we don't like Bill Clinton. We don't like where he stands for. We don't like his generation. We don't like, you know, the things that he did. Uh, you know, he signed the uh, Defense of Marriage Act, you know, to bar gay marriage in the United States. Uh, um, you know, because at that time, America was a much more conservative nation than, uh, than it became later on. So now it looked very homophobic what he did, where at the time he was just going with what a majority of Americans wanted. So now, the you know, so the Clintons were not very popular by the time she ran for president in 2016. Now Trump has, you know, before he just, he said things, he did things, but he didn't have a record to run on. And so it was easy to say, well, we'll, we'll give Trump a chance. Now he has a record. So it's it's harder to know if people are going to look back at his record and say, we like what he's done. We want to see more. Or they're going to say, we gave him a chance. He didn't accomplish what we wanted him to. He's made things worse. We want to change. So it, it's very hard. I can see a scenario where Biden could win because of just all of everything that's happening, whether it's his fault or not. The president, you know, like James Monroe our fifth president was president under what was called the era of good feelings. He did nothing to do that, but he, but because America was at peace and Americans were happy and they were prosperous for their times, he became very popular and he won reelection and he hadn't done really anything, had nothing to do with it. But because people felt good about the country, they, they supported him. And in times of economic turmoil or just turmoil in general, People blame the president. Whether the president had anything to do with it or not, uh, they blame the president. So in that sense, I can see where Biden could win. They could just say, I'm just tired of all of it. Even though Trump might not be to blame for the pandemic, he might not be blamed for the riots, he might not be blamed for the bad economy, he might not be blamed for all these things. We're just tired. We're just tired of it. We're tired of all the anger. We're tired of the acrimony. We're just tired of the vitriol. We're just tired of turning on the news and just hearing about how bad things are. Let's just, let's just try Biden. Let's try him. You know, maybe things will get better. Maybe they won't, but gosh, let's just try something because this isn't working. Or people could look at it and say, he's not to blame for all this. You know, he's trying to do what he thinks is right. And the Democrats are thwarting him at every turn and it's their fault and you can't let them win. Um, so it's really hard for me to come down and say, 
this is what's going to happen, you know. I know a lot of people, a lot of my friends have very, very strong opinions both ways. I have friends who will say absolutely, there is no doubt in their mind they believe 100% Trump is going to win re-election. And he very well could. But I can't say that. There are also people who say that 100% Biden is going to win because, well, they have a whole list of reasons we're not going to get into, but, and he very well could win. I don't know. I, I'm not going to be in that position to make a statement like that because I don't know. If I really believed one way or the other, I would say, absolutely, this is my belief. I believe it. I will go to the mat for it. You know, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but this is what I believe. Um, if, if I had to wager a bet, I would say it's more likely that Trump wins re-election because Americans have a tendency to support incumbents. We haven't voted out an incumbent since 1992. Um, it's been a long time since, since an incumbent president has lost the presidency. Um, so if history is an indication, I would say he probably would win, but I wouldn't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to die on the hill. I'm not going to just say absolutely he's going to win. I'd say my gut would tell me he would win if the election was right now, but you know, 40 days doesn't sound like much, but you know, that's a lot could happen in 40 days. So anyway, that's all for our time today. Um, Hope you're back next week. Uh, I'm going to have some hopefully very interesting things to talk about next week. And uh, hope you all have a great week. Be sure to like and subscribe and uh, um, you know, comment, all those things. And so uh, I'll see you again real soon. Bye. <laughs>